Our Father, we do delight to express our dependence on you, that we need you every hour. We delight to sing of your grace that is amazing, that has both called us into fellowship with you, will carry us through this world. Even as we read you, discipline us not to punish us, but rather to shape us and mold us into the character of Christ and as the writer of Hebrews says, to produce in us holiness and the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And we thank you for that grace that will carry us not only through this world, but at the end, deliver us safely into your presence where in Christ we stand blameless with great joy and will know the fullness of our salvation in its eternal and unending expression in resurrected bodies never to die Never to know sin, never to know pain, sorrow, fear, and death, but only delight and worship and joy and love and peace and holiness in union with our Savior forever. Encourage us with these thoughts. And even now as we look at your word this morning, would you, Holy Spirit, be our teacher, be our guide, be our instructor. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, as you know, we've been in uh, the book of Ecclesiastes for quite a while, and uh, we're taking a little bit of a break, but one theme that we've looked at repeatedly in Ecclesiastes, and particularly last week, is the idea of justice, or rather injustice, that exists in the world. And that was particularly a theme, not only of chapter 8, but definitely of chapter 8, which we looked at last week. Namely, Solomon brings us into the realities of life, reality of a fallen creation, a theme, again, throughout the, that forms the background of all of the book of Ecclesiastes that's prominent and keeps coming before us is the idea that God created the world holy, but it has fallen, and sin now has corrupted those things that God has made as good. And one area of that corruption, one way that corruption is manifest is through the reality of injustice in this world, oppression, the fact that wealth and power is often misused not to serve others, but to get gain for oneself at the cost of others, that justice is imperfectly executed in this world. And that is certainly not only a reality in Solomon's world, it has been a reality for mankind throughout her history. And it is certainly a reality as much in our day as well. And so that's where I want to just take a little break before we get into chapter 9 next week and look at the reality of this idea or the idea of justice uh, in this world. That, of course, is something that's continually brought before us. It is a key word in our culture nowadays. Uh, it is particularly given the under, comes under the banner, at least in terms of cultural discussion, under the idea of social justice. So I want to take just this Sunday morning. Now, these are endless topics. They're, each of the things that we'll mention this morning could uh, be worthy of weeks to spend on or at least a week in and of itself. Uh, so the goal this morning is I want to address the topic of social justice and biblical justice. In fact, that is the title of the message 
biblical justice versus social justice. And the goal and the intent this morning is merely to set a broad framework for how to think about these things. What are the ideologies that are behind the cultural discussion? And how are we as a church to respond to them? How are we to understand them? And how are we to respond to them? And again, there's no way that we can look at this in all of its detail. I do have, if you wonder what I brought up with me, a book that is available in the bookstore, which I think has done, uh, did an excellent job at kind of pulling together a lot of complicated ideas in a very useful and helpful and simple way. It's called Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice. I don't usually advertise books, but uh, there we go. Uh, there's my advertisement on this one, uh, which will cover a lot of these things in more detail. But I want to this morning, as we look at this topic broadly, uh, to look under at three main headings, and that they're simple enough. that it, Biblical justice, what is biblical justice? Social justice, what is some of the ideology and its particulars that are shaping our culture and, our, and the worldview of many in our nation and in, in the world for that matter? And then finally, how are we to respond as a church? How are we to respond as a church? And so we'll look at those three broad headings. And uh, I will make every attempt, and I fully intend to get through this in one message. I don't actually want to belabor this too long, but it is something that we need to address publicly as a church, at least in our local congregation. So to do that, let's begin with biblical justice. What is biblical justice? Well, biblical justice is by its very title, by its very definition, justice as revealed in Scripture, justice as revealed in line with the character of God, with the nature of God, with how God has ordered this world to be lived in with order and with a right upholdment of truth or upholding truth rightly. So let me give just a few characteristics of biblical justice. A few characteristics of biblical justice. First of all, as we think of the idea of justice as it is revealed to us in Scripture, we need to first understand that justice is at its foundation grounded in the truth. It's grounded in the truth. In other words, truth as life really is, truth that accords to reality. It's not one's personal truth, but is truth as an objective reality that is transcendent. It's truth as it stands outside of us, not as it originates inside of us. It is truth that we are beholden to, not that we create ourselves. In other words, it is revealed truth. And to say it is revealed truth is to say that justice is, first of all, grounded then in the character and in the nature of God. It's grounded in the character and the nature of God. Again, it is outside of us. It is outside of us. It is not surprising then that certain aspects of the Mosaic law, for example then, because it is God's truth, would be evident in other cultures throughout the history of the world. There is a certain idea of righteousness, a certain idea of law, a certain, uh, a certain level, a certain kind of code that exists in every culture because we are made in the image of God and therefore we would expect that. However, when a conscience moves further and further away from any view of transcendence, something that is objective and outside of us, then we could expect that the idea of justice would be further and further removed from God's intention and from that which is for the good of humanity and for human flourishing, but rather to its harm. 
That's why we as Christians must hold firmly to the reality that justice is grounded in truth, particularly as it is revealed in Scripture and in revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And as we would see that worked out in Scripture, uh, there are just a few characteristics, uh, ways that that is upheld. First of all, in the Old Testament, in order to maintain the truthfulness of justice, there was, before any sentence was laid, the requirement of witnesses. In other words, there was every fact had to be affirmed. Every fact had to be affirmed. In Deuteronomy 17.6, the law says this, On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death, and he shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. In other words, truth had to be confirmed, knowing that there is the possibility of misunderstanding, there is the possibility of misrepresentation, there is the possibility of misinformation, that every truth has to be affirmed by at least two witnesses. God roundly condemns then the idea of a false witness. That is mentioned, in fact, in Proverbs 6.19 is one of the things that God hates. He says this, a false, what does God hate? A false witness who utters lies and one who spreads strife among brothers. In other words, truth is at the very center of justice. Justice from a biblical concept. This truth is to be evidenced in every area of life, honesty and commerce. Leviticus 19.35 says this, You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measurement of weight or capacity. You shall have just balances, just weights. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In other words, to reflect my character, honesty is to mark all of your human relationships. You are my people. You are to be holy. Therefore, truth and equity and righteousness is to mark how you deal with one another. Justice within a biblical worldview is something then, because it is transcendent, because it is attached to God's character, because it is revealed as the will of God, is something that is equally applied to all people. In other words, there are no favorites in the reality of biblical justice. There is no preference given to one over the other. This idea of being equitable, of treating all people as image bearers of God is very fundamental to a Christian self-consciousness. James 2 says to the church that you are not to give favoritism to the rich over the poor when they come into your assembly. You are to treat everyone equally. They are equally belonging to Christ, equally made in the image of God. They are to receive equal treatment. Paul says in preaching the gospel, he preferred no one, but he saw every man only as they were in relation to Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In other words, as Christians, we see men as made in the image of God and equally beholden to the requirements of God and to be equally afforded the same rights under that requirement of God, not based on where one stands in culture or society. So a key tenet of justice, according to Scripture, is that all people of all social standings are made in the image of God and subject equally to his standard of righteousness. That is, in fact, even a part of our identity in terms of the justice system in America or Western civilization. The idea is that justice is blind. There's a famous statue of Lady Justice, and she has a blindfold on, meaning that the, the application of truth is is blind to any person's particular position, but it is applied equally to all. Let me give you just a few examples. Deuteronomy 1.17. You shall show no partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. 
The case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me and I will hear it, Moses said. Later he said in Deuteronomy 10, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. Romans 2.11, There is no partiality with God. So the key idea here is that under the law, under the righteous treatment of men, that we are to understand that everyone is equally beholden to the same standard of truth, the same sense of responsibility, and are afforded the same privileges under the law. Those who pervert justice are condemned. Those who bear false witness and distort the truth stand outside of God's purposes and actually do harm to man and do harm to God's testimony in the world. That means there's another aspect then of biblical justice. And these I know I'm going through quickly. I'm just meaning to give a a general idea. And that is this. Biblical justice understands individual responsibility. Individual responsibility. Yes, there are in Scripture generational consequences to sin. The sins of one generation bear consequences that echo out through other generations uh, in the history of God's people. And so he says in Exodus chapter 34, for example... Uh, He says this, that he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and to the fourth generation. That is not to say that he holds one generation guilty for the sins of the other. It is to say that one generation will suffer the consequences of that which have gone before them. And we see that worked out in many ways in life. But in fact... For justice to be right, for justice to be equitable, each person is held responsible for their own actions and their own sin in terms of individual cases before the law. Now this concept here in Ezekiel 18 is meant before one's accountability to God, but it is a principle that echoes throughout all of Scripture. It is this, the person who sins... Uh, Ezekiel 18.20, will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. In other words, you as an individual, I as an individual, everyone stands equally responsible for their own actions, their own choices, their own life before God and before the law. Because righteousness is transcendent, uh, justice is transcendent and attached to the character of God, it is inextricably bound to the idea of righteousness. So righteousness, if we would simply define that, is conformity to what is right. Conformity to what is right. In a biblical sense, it is conformity. It is acting consistent with God's own character. It is acting consistent with the truth. Justice is to uphold, then, the character of God, treating people with, again, genuine equity and dignity as image bearers. This kind of justice, then, is at the heart of the law. It is at the heart of what it means to be righteous. In Micah 6, 8, the prophet says this, He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus himself, in addressing the Pharisees and addressing the leaders of his nation, upheld to them their failure to grasp the essence of the weightier things of the law by saying this, in all of your de- uh, attention to the minutia of the law, you have neglected weightier things, which he says is justice, mercy, 
and faithfulness. Righteousness, then, in conformity with God's character, is ultimately the just expression of love for God and love for neighbor. It's how we show love to our neighbor. It is how we show love to our fellow man, is to afford them justice, justice based on truth, justice based on what is right, justice that will uphold just punishment for what is wrong and vindication of what is right. And this is what was to mark the kingdom in its idealistic sense. It is what the kings were to administer in Israel. In 2 Samuel 8:15, David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and righteousness for all the people. His son Solomon in the glory of his kingdom was extolled by the queen of Sheba when she said these words, Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore he made you king to do what? To do justice and righteousness. As you lived rightly before God, as you called the people to live rightly before God, as you lived consistently with the covenant and the revealed will of God, you were to uphold all that was right, and that was the mark of a good and a faithful king. In fact, that is the very mark of the coming kingdom of the Messiah. We read this at Christmas, Isaiah 9, 7, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And that means finally then, one aspect of biblical justice is this, is that we realize, as was noted at the beginning, that this justice is never perfect in this life. The reality is that all creation groans under the weight of sin, All of creation bears the consequences of the corruption of the human heart, of the spiritual death that lays over all of humanity and within men who are unregenerate and unredeemed. And so it is never perfect in this world. And so as Christians, while we should always pursue justice to the best of our ability, we realize that ultimate justice will not be realized until that promise is fulfilled When Christ returns. And so, as Christians, we hope in a future perfect justice because we recognize human sinfulness. And Scripture recognizes that this justice is only going to be known in all of its holy glory as God intended it when God Himself is the executioner of it when He returns. This is the last point, but let me give you just a couple of verses there. And actually, this is very interesting. In uh, Psalm 98, I'll go there. In Psalm 98, you can look at Psalm 96 too, but let me go to Psalm 98. He says this. And what's interesting about this point is this, is because God is the creator of the world, because God is the upholder of all truth, because creation was meant to live in harmony with its creator, because man was given the responsibility to rule over creation in harmony with his creator. It is creation itself that is said to rejoice at the coming judgment of God. So listen to Psalm 98, verses 4 through 9. 
Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord, for he is coming, what? To judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. And this coming judgment then is to be for all of creation and all of for man who dwells on it. For those who rightly long for God, who live, desire to live rightly before him, this is a time of joy. Why? Because it is the time when everything else will be set right. It is the time when every injustice will be met with perfect justice. It is the time when every wrong will be righted. It is the time when every lie will be made to submit to the truth. And for those who love the truth, and for those who love God, and for those who love what is right, this is a time of rejoicing. This is an anticipation of what Paul said, that all creation longs to be set into the freedom of the sons of God. This freedom and this joy of righteousness will come only after God has executed his perfect justice on the earth. And so this is what was anticipated by Paul in Acts 17.2, that this justice would be perfectly executed as was anticipated by the prophet Isaiah. We read it earlier when Christ himself returns, in which he will execute justice on the earth. He said, when this resurrected Christ returns to establish the kingdom. And so because this is the case, because perfect justice is coming, we as Christians do not live in the light of human corruption and the failures and the imperfections of justice in this world with a sense of defeatism or resignation. It simply means that while we work for justice, while we're frustrated by injustice, we pursue it in hope. We pursue it in hope that our efforts are not in vain and that eventually what is right will be magnified and what is wrong will be judged. So the desire for justice, if we just sum this up, in the earth is fundamental to man. It's, it's part of being made in the image of God. It's part of having God's image within us. We want to work for what is right. We want to work for the good. We want to work for what is the protection of the weak and for the flourishing of man. That is, that is a basic Christian sentiment. It's a, it's a human sentiment in general. And this is why the concept of justice is so readily affirmed, why it receives such easily affirm, easy affirmation within our culture and within the human heart. And while, however, while justice is good, again, justice, biblically speaking, rightly speaking, must be defined and understood as based in God's character and based in what is true based in what is equable, based in what upholds individual responsibility, based in hope. When it's laid on any other foundation than what agrees with a biblical worldview, then it becomes dangerous. It becomes dangerous. It actually becomes a threat. It becomes harmful. And that is, brings us then to the contemporary embrace of what is known as social justice, which is an ideology built on an understanding of the world in which God is not the creator and God is not the ruler and his truth is not the standard. In other words, it is essentially based on an 
atheistic worldview in its foundations. Now again, this topic is far and wide and can in no way be covered in depth in one message or even in all of the constituent parts by mention. So this is no attempt to do that. It's meant to give just a very general idea of the basic tenets of social justice as we have to, as we see it lived out in our culture, as we encounter it with family members and friends and neighbors as coworkers, as we try to discern the news and other things as it comes to us and what is the thinking behind it and even our own government. And so this is meant to give just a general idea. So first of all then, secondly, what is social justice? What is social justice? Social justice is an ideology that finds its roots, that finds its origin in what is Marxist ideology. Is Marxist ideology. Now, again, there's no way that we're going to get into all of that. But let me just make it simple in this way, that Marxist ideology essentially is a worldview. It is an atheistic worldview. It is an atheistic worldview that looks at all of human history, all of culture, all of society, all of its structures, all of its morality, all of it, and divides it into two classes, those who are oppressed and those who are the oppressors. It is a system of power. It says that power is what drives all of human activity, human identity. It is what drives those who oppress, and it is what is lacked by those who are oppressed. In other words, all men and those in power yield it solely for the control of others and the advantage of themselves. And it is this, I- this idea for power, this lust for power that has constructed the very structures on which society, particular Western society, was built. At the very beginning of the Communist Manifesto, we find these words. The history of all hitherto existing societies is the history of class struggles. Free man and slave, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, guild master and journeyman, in a word, oppressor and oppressed stood in constant opposition to one another, carried on an uninterrupted, now hidden, now open fight, a fight that each time ended either in a revolutionary reconstitution of society at large or in the common ruin of the contending classes. Workers are in this system slaves of the bourgeois class and of the bourgeois state. In other words, in the bourgeois, simply those who hold power, those who have land, those who have property those things that are taken away and denied to the worker, to the proletarian, as they're called in Marxist, uh, in his ideology, in his defense of communism. So in other words, all of the world is divided into those who are oppressed, those who have, uh, have no power, and the oppressors, those who have power. These ideas have been translated into the formulation of classes in our contemporary context based not so much always on poverty, though in some ways, but based even broader than that on such things as identity, sexual identity, gender identity, or class identity, which claim the status of victimhood, something we'll come back to later. So what are some general tenets of social justice? What are some general tenets of this ideology? One is group identity, group identity. Sometimes we hear this under the language of identity politics. We see that all around. But it is group identity. Again, within Marxism, one has to be a part of a group. 
one group, either the group that is oppressed or the group that is the oppressor, the one who lacks power or the one who has power. Within contemporary social justice, again, these are divided between identities based on race, gender, or psychological categories such as sexual fluidity. And each of these then takes on and identifies themselves as an oppressed group, an oppressed group. One has said this. Actually, this is uh, from this book that I mentioned by Scott Allen. Ideological social justice views human beings as creatures whose identity is wholly determined by group affiliations, particularly those based on race, sex, and so-called gender identity, that is the LGBTQ+. There is no shared human nature. Even more radically, there is no such thing as the individual. Rather, our identity is entirely socially constructed. Based on this radical presupposition, your personal history, life experience, choices, and deeply held beliefs don't matter. The only thing that matters is defining who you are and who your group affiliations are. That is the basis of identity politics. You're not an individual. You're not an individual with an individual history, with individual choices, with individual consequences that come into your life. You are simply identified as a group. As a matter of fact, to show an absurdity of this, there is uh, many examples could be given. But if a person is, for example, a black middle-class, educated, married with a family, white-collar job, successful in suburban America, he is still a part of an oppressed class. If you are a white, poor, West Virginian up in the mountains with no opportunity and living in squalor, you are still a part of the oppressor class. Again, it has nothing to do with your individual circumstances, your life choices or anything else. It has merely to do with some group identification. And this could be multiplied over and over. And while that might have the sound of something altruistic, it actually destroys individuality. It actually is against the individual. It counts the individual as nothing and makes the basis solely what your identity is based on what group that you are a part of. It's very destructive. Indeed, without a biblical worldview, sin is not then a theological category of offense against a transcendent God, against the Creator, but it merely is being the victim of some kind of oppression or oppressed group within the power structures of society. That is at the basis of this idea of social justice. Identification with a group, again, based on race, sexuality, or some other criteria that marks one as either oppressed or the oppressor. I'll mention this later, but that is what is behind critical race theory, which sees power as a zero-sum game, which means there's only a set amount of power. And so in as much as one group has power, it takes away power from another group. And therefore, in order for this group to have power, it has to take it away from another. This is the conflict that exists. And it says then in critical race theory that if you are white, you are merely by virtue of being white, regardless of your personal history, regardless of your deeply held beliefs, regardless of the decisions that you've made in life, regardless of your own personal actions, you are a part of the problem because you are a part of a system that has oppressed people and imposed your power on others, and therefore, you need to be destroyed. As amazing as it sounds, this is the kind of thinking that reaches the highest part of government and corporations. 
even sports and certainly of culture. Oppression within the system, again, is attached to a sense of powerlessness that is perpetuated by an evil system. Within the sexual revolution, this is directly attached to any suppression of an individual's sexual identity. In other words, morality, societal structure, even Christianity itself is not something that has essential truth or transcendent reality. It is merely a tool of those who have power to wield that power on culture to wield that power on others in a way that represses them from the full expression of their individuality, from them being authenticate, authentic human beings. The attachment with sexuality was advanced in its most comprehensive form by Sigmund Freud, who identified sexuality not merely as choices that we make for sexual pleasure, but the very identity of who we are as human beings. We are essentially sexual creatures, and therefore, to be authentic, we have to have the full expression or the liberty to fully express who we are in terms of our sexuality. Now, again, there's much more to be said about that, but that is at least a basic idea. So then, within this group identity and the the breakdown of power, those who have power and those who don't have power, there is the idea of victimhood, of victimhood, and this is incredibly important. I know we're moving off a little bit from our normal, <laughs> just walking through a passage of Scripture. We're going to get back there, but we have to understand what it is that we're, what we're, what we're to speak truth to, the ideas that we're to speak truth to. And so I'll go through this more quickly. Again, I don't want to get too lost on this. But the idea of victimhood is, is incredibly important. If you are a part of an oppressed group, then you are, by definition, a victim, a victim, You are a victim of the abuse of power by someone else. And I will just say up front that this idea, it destroys any sense of human dignity. When you take away moral responsibility from an individual, you destroy that individual's dignity as a responsible human moral agent before God as having any power. That, in fact, makes an individual powerless because it says you have no power within yourself to make choices that will change and direct your future. Rather, you are merely the victim and you need a paternal source, an external source to come in and to give you what you cannot give yourself. It actually destroys human dignity, the idea of victimhood. It says then that we are not ultimately responsible for our lives, but we are merely the victims of something outside of us that has oppressed us. When a person or group adopts the label of victim, it ruins again the idea of personal responsibility, creates an unhealthy dependence on others, and becomes a justification for all manner of foolishness and unrighteous behavior. I can tell you, and you already know this by your own experience, but in terms of counseling, In terms of counseling, when somebody comes in, when somebody comes in with the mindset of I am a victim, counseling is over at that point. It's done. There's nothing to say. Because once you are a victim, you are absolved from any moral responsibility. Your choices are merely the consequences that you have of having been wronged. You you have no moral responsibility and commands of God to obey, obey on your own. It's absolutely destructive. It's one of the most destructive mindsets that there is in terms of growth, in terms of sanctification, in terms of joy, in terms of flourishing, in terms of happiness. But this is, of course, endemic to the idea of social justice, is that someone is a victim. 
Scott Allen, who once was an embracer of the idea of Marxist principles and social justice, describes his move from that mindset into a biblical understanding of justice. And he describes that in this way, picking up on the idea of victimhood. He says this, Over time, I came to see that that Marxist worldview assumptions do far more harm to the poor than to help them. It did not see the poor as fully human, created in the image of God, with dignity, responsibility, and the capacity to create new wealth and new opportunities. My former Marxist-influenced worldview saw them largely as helpless victims, dependent upon the actions of beneficent Westerners to overcome poverty. This fostered a destructive sense of paternalism and guilt on one side and a damaging sense of dependency and entitlement on the other. Is that not a display of our culture. If one is a victim, then they have, while it might appeal to that natural sense of absolving us of responsibility, it actually puts one in a category of powerlessness. Powerlessness. And therefore, if someone is a victim, then they need to have one who has made them a victim. Then they need to have something to oppress. So another key idea of social justice is what has often been uh, talked about under the idea of scapegoating, scapegoating. Now, the idea of the scapegoat, of course, has biblical roots. It goes back to the imagery of Leviticus 16 in the Day of Atonement. If you remember, we've looked at this in the past, I think not too long ago. In other words, when when the Day of the Atonement and the high priest was uh, going through the ritual prescribed by God that was to show God's uh, forgiveness to the nation based on sacrifice. Part of this included two goats. One goat was uh, given for an atonement and one was given as a scapegoat. The goat that was for the atonement uh, it was then killed and slaughtered, blood uh, spread around. The one that was a scapegoat, the sins of the nation were confessed on that goat and it was sit out, sent out into the wilderness, thus picturing the two aspects of the atonement, propitiation and expiation. Expiation is the idea is that the sin is removed, the presence of sin is removed from the people of God. It is taken outside of the camp. It is put away from them. The idea of propitiation is, of course, that the wrath of God is satisfied against the sin of his people. It is averted. It is moved away through the death of the goat that was slain. So scapegoating then, building on that idea, actually, is a key idea within social justice. Not that they they, uh, attach that necessarily to the atonement of Scripture. In one conversation, one brings this out. And I I won't get the whole thing, but let me capture the idea. In a conversation that... uh, one uh, theologian, Albert Moeller, had with uh, a historian, Joshua Mitchell. In this conversation, Joshua Mitchell says this, who wrote a work on identity politics. He says this, I'm haunted more and more by those passages after Eve eats the apple and gives it to Adam. And God says, Eve, what was the cause of this? And she blames the serpent. And Adam says, well, the woman that you gave me, which is one of the most beautiful lines in the Bible. It's your fault. God, gave, God, you gave me this woman. This is the universal disposition is to look outside of yourself for a fault that is within yourself. And I think this really is the crisis of identity politics and of social justice. In other words, 
those who buy into social justice, those who buy into identity politics, those who buy into the idea of victimization, those who buy into the idea that there's only the oppressed and the oppressor, aren't going to take the responsibility for themselves as an individual, but therefore need to find some other reason for their own situation. That's the idea of a scapegoat. That's the concept as it's used uh, within this, this kind of discussion. What you have, he goes on to say, Joshua Mitchell, is with identity politics is a desperate search to cover over the fig leaf of righteousness of right with righteousness your stain and to direct it elsewhere. If only the white heterosexual male were to disappear, everything would be fine. And this is no defense of the white heterosexual male. My argument is that as soon as he is purged, because it's a profoundly distorted theodicy, you will need to find another group to purge. In other words, no one's safe. As soon as the white heterosexual male receives all the blame and that's done, well, then it's going to be somewhere else. Why? Because, of, because difficult circumstances and injustice is always going to exist. There's always going to be someone else to blame. And at the very idea of that, again, is a loss of personal responsibility, individual responsibility. Rather, we put the blame on others. It's basic to our human condition in the fall. And it's basic to the idea of social justice. There's only rage. There's no self-reflection or humility. There's only anger. So again, it's a worldview that replaces the need for personal responsibility with blame shifting. And in this sense, it is a new kind of religion that redefines sin and therefore atonement in terms of a political framework. Another part of it, and this is actually key, and again, I'll go quickly through these. Another part of social justice, and this is at the very heart and the idea of Marxism, and it is what fuels a lot of the political movements that we're seeing. It is the idea of destruction. The systems that are in place, and even the morality that's in place by the church, by religion, does not need to be reformed. It does not need to be brought into line with the principles of the, the oppressed people who seek freedom. It needs to be utterly destroyed. There is no other answer. Revolution is the only solution. Revolution that destroys. Of course, we've seen this in riots and violence that has ravished our nation. And it's the ideology of social justice that instigates and fuels such action. Again, it's the idea that the structures and ideologies of Western civilization are inherently and essentially evil and oppressive, not to be reformed, but to be destroyed and built on with progressive ideas. And what is meant by progressive ideas? The idea of progressivism is that there is sort of this arc to history and it's always moving forward. And because it's always moving forward, that means whatever is in the past, whatever traditions there were in the past, are not good building blocks uh, to be built on, but rather they are a means of holding back progress. So we see this again. Monogamy and traditional marriage is not something to be celebrated as stable in society. It is something to be seen as repressive that opposes the true authentic self and the free sexual expression of each autonomous individual. And therefore it needs to be destroyed. And that is, beloved, what is the goal behind the sexual revolution and even predating that, Marxism. He states explicitly, I'll mention this later, is that the destruction of the family. So there is within this idea, again, we've seen this, and I'm going to just mention, then we don't have time. There is the idea that there needs to be the destruction of capitalism. There needs to be the destruction of all societal structures. As a matter of fact, let me just give this. 
from the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels write this, the immediate aim of the communist is the same as that of all other proletarian parties. Formation of the proletariat into a class, overthrow of the bourgeois supremacy, conquest of political power by the proletariat. In other words, it's to regain power from those who have oppressed us, and it is to destroy them. There is the destruction of private property. There is the destruction of morality. There is a destruction of morality. Again, one has said, ideological social justice is a highly moral movement. It has a finely divine sense of right and wrong, and its followers relish the righteousness and moral purity the ideology affords them. At the heart of it is to rid ourselves of an old morality that has held us back and to afford a new reality, to embrace a new morality that places at the center of it not some transcendent truth that we are responsible to conform to, but in line with postmodern philosophy, our own truth and our own individual autonomous expression. And you say, well, then the idea of justice, which is a good thing, all of a sudden becomes then the foundation for things such as reproductive justice, which is what? The justification to abort a child in the room, to kill a child all the way up to the point of birth, and in the most extreme forms, even after birth. Why? Because it is wrong, it is unjust to make a woman who had sex and got pregnant to be responsible for the care of that child while the man gets to go free. This is the argument of feminism in its fullest expression. And therefore, it's unjust to cause her to in any way forgo what would be her happiness and her sense of fulfillment by shackling her with this child. Morality in any biblical or traditional sense, again, is rejected as merely a social construct of the powerful to hinder the pursuit of true happiness. And that, therefore, leads to the destruction of the family. As a matter of fact, Marx called directly for the abolition of the family. The abolition of the family. As a matter of fact, in Black Lives Matter original statement that was removed after an outcry came out, and Black Lives Matter, which has an explicit connection with Marxist ideology, said this, the original statement, we intend to disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family, that is, a mother and a father in a lifelong monogamous commitment relationship in which they have children and raise them up to be productive members of society. That is evil. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as an extended family in villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. That, by the way, beloved, is already in curriculum being taught in schools in Buffalo and many other counties. And that idea has already been being taught in California curriculum for years. I remember first hearing about it at least five or six years ago, some of the curriculum. That is that there is no sense of parental authority. In fact, parental authority is something that is to be is destructive to the progress of society. Why? Because it ties children to outdated ideas of morality that hinder progress. That's the idea. And therefore, the language explicit, even in California curriculum, uh, goes something like this. You may have been taught at home by your parents, but... And on it goes. This is, beloved, why a child who is 13 years old can, without consent of children and even uh, parents, even younger, be taken for gender reassignment therapy or an abortion without parental consent. 
Why? Because there is no parental authority. There is no responsibility of the, the parent for the raising and the nurturing of their child. The parents are the part of the problem. And the state needs to rescue them. And again, so much could be said about this, but this is a, goes back to the very idea of Marxism and communism. As a matter of fact, the re-education of children was a key idea in the Communist Manifesto. He's, in fact, said explicitly this, Karl Marx, we need to rescue education from the influence of the ruling class. We need to rescue education from the influence of the ruling class. Commenting on these ideologies and the present influence in education, one wrote, contemporary education has become in some quarters preoccupied with the liberation of children's sexual instinct and the elimination of any religious influence whatsoever. And this, of course, then necessarily entails the destruction of Christianity. Christianity is a hindrance to this. But let me jump ahead. It is the oppression of, then leads to the oppression of free speech. The ideas then, the American ideas of freedom of religion, freedom of speech, and individual personal rights, freedom of personal rights, actually are not values to be defended and to be embraced, they are, again, only tools of the ruling class for oppression. Let me just unfold that a little bit. Applying this to critical race theory, which again argues for white privilege as built into the reality of all societal structures and a part of the oppressive nature of these power structures. So applying that idea of the oppression of free speech to critical race theory, one wrote this. Critical race theory, like other critical theories, post-colonialism or queer theory, for example, is self-certifying. Its basic claims, for example, that racism is systemic or that being non-racist is impossible are not conclusions drawn from an argument. They are axioms, self-evident truths. And they cannot be challenged by... They cannot be challenged by those who do not agree with them. Those who dissent or offer criticism are by definition part of the problem. In other words, you start with the conclusion and then you judge every other argument by that conclusion. So if you argue against the idea that you're a part of the oppressed group for being white, that's not an argument to be evaluated in light of truth and history. It is merely a weapon to be destroyed as a means of exerting your own power and preserving what you have. So anything that does not acknowledge the truthfulness of the ideology of critical race theory or social justice grievances are by definition not opposing arguments to be weighed, but evidence of ignorance and hostility to the true victims, mere expressions of either the depth of self-deception or the more sinister manipulation to retain power. That's the idea of it. This goes down even deeper, and, I'm, and I am going to jump here in just a sec to the biblical response. Let me just mention a few things. In this context, the idea of what was framed by an older writer as the psychological self, and that is that selfhood is defined merely by one's psychological perception, their own personal perception of themselves. Now, there's, again, a lot to be said with that. But in its application, it means that a person's psychological well-being becomes the essential right and definition of their personhood. That's how a person can say, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, and why if we put this into the sexual revolution aspect, Bruce Jenner could say, for years I lived a lie as Bruce, really I was Caitlyn. 
But that's where it leads to. In other words, selfhood, personhood, who I am essentially as an individual has nothing to do with anything outside of me. It has no objective reality. It has nothing to do with uh, anatomy or anything else. It has merely to do with how I feel about myself. And so once feelings and the psychological self becomes the essential definition of an individual, then anything that opposes that becomes a means of oppression, a means of hate. Sound familiar? Let me give you just a little bit of an example. One said, culture must now serve the purposes of meeting my psychological needs. I must not tailor my psychological need to the nature of society, for that would create anxiety and make me inauthentic. That's the ideology. Therefore, since each person has the essential right to psychological happiness, which includes the unchallenged sense of personal identity and personal truth, to challenge this amounts to an attack on the person as a person. One goes on to say, or one says, language, I quote, will become more, much more contested an act of oppression. This explains why so much outrage in the public square is now directed at what we might call crimes. Hate speech speaks to this. The same writer goes on later to say, certain forms of speech have been criminalized in some democracies precisely because of their connection to violence. And once violence comes to be seen to include the psychological, these laws become somewhat elastic in scope. And it is the latter hate speech that is provision that is so problematic, a concept on campuses precisely because it cuts across standard notions of free speech. In other words, speech is no longer within this ideology of social justice a valid argument to be weighed and to be considered. It is a weapon and a tool. It actually becomes a crime when it threatens somebody's sense of well-being. We have safe spaces. There are examples you can see of this one. I can think of particularly where a person went on a college campus and was just interviewing people, and the person called security because they were being threatened. With what? Another idea that made them feel unsafe. In other words, speech becomes a form of violence because it threatens the sense of emotional well-being, security, and happiness of the individual. Although the violence is not physical, but it is psychological, it is given the same legal protection. And now you see where it comes to the rubber meets the road, don't we? And why we have to understand these things. If something speech that contradicts a person's own self-identity, it is an attack on their personhood. It then becomes an issue of civil rights. It then becomes a crime. So, to speak against the transgender ideology, to reject the idea of marriage as including same-sex couples, and say that it is God's creation between a man and a woman in a lifelong monogamous commitment relationship, is not an opposing argument. It is a means of oppression. It is a weapon of hate, and it is a crime, eventually. It is a crime, And this is what we as a church are facing and will face. Another aspect of this social justice is it rejects the idea of man's sinfulness and promotes goodness. As a matter of fact, Marx spoke often of a utopian society. Now let's transition here. The seduction of the critical race theory and social justice is powerful because it provides a comprehensive explanation for all of the evils of society. If you don't have a biblical worldview, you have to replace it with something else. And that's the idea. And it has to be something else that can't be in any way attached to any historical Christian identity or religion. Why? Because those, again, are only means of oppression. 
to hold us back, to help make me an inauthentic person by telling me that I have to behave in a certain way or I can't define myself in a certain way. It is simple in its presentation of power as a zero-sum game, and it provides a sense of virtue and draws clear lines for the good and the evil. Let me tell you, you know what's behind this? I, I, you probably too, but I'm, this is what strikes me each time, is a deep-seated sense of self-righteousness. And once you have self-righteousness, then you have all of the authority within your conscience, all of the rights to condemn and to destroy everything that does not conform to your idea of what it should be. This is then a great cultural temptation for the church to succumb to. One said this, who wants to be guilty of standing on the side of the oppressors rather than in solidarity with the victims of injustice? Why do we have massive corporations and highly intellectual and professional businesses and corporations and multi million and billion dollar sports agencies so radically conform because who wants to be said they're not on the side of the victims? That has a powerful cultural influence. Why does the church in so many ways want to identify in some way or not be opposed to Black Lives Matter? Or who wants to say that they're opposed to the victims? That they're a part of the oppressed class? It's very seductive. However, the truth of Christ has always been countercultural. Therefore, we must resist the temptation to think that the power of our message is attached to how likable we are by the culture. We must resist that temptation. This is fruitless because to be liked by the culture is to be bound to culture's ideology of what is right and wrong. And we cannot do that because it is not defined by Scripture. And it will necessarily lead then to the church to a compromise of the truth. One has powerfully said that. He says, in recent decades, evangelicals have thirsted after cultural approval. Like the world's saddest pageant contestants, we want desperately to be accepted by secular culture. We have exchanged our holy birthright for a Facebook fan page. Our hermeneutic is not motivated by righteous awe, by fear and trembling, by the honoring and magnificence of our God. It is driven by a craven desire to be liked, to be culturally accepted. Nailed it on the head. Jesus said this, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But you are not of the world. But I chose you out of the world. And because of this, the world hates you. You cannot be grounded in faithfulness to Christ and the truth and expect people to like you. And you certainly cannot be motivated by the fact that they like you. The issue is the truth. The issue is the gospel. In Luke 16, 15, he said this to the Pharisees, or to the, about them, you are those who justify yourself in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. So how is the church to respond? Well, let me say this just briefly. One is the church cannot compromise on the truth. We believe in the inspiration of Scripture. We hold that not as a doctrinal point, but we believe that the written word of God is the living and active word of God given by the eternal God, by the eternal word to reveal himself and truth. That is always the measure of what is right or wrong, what is acceptable or not acceptable, and the marching orders for God's people in this world. The church cannot compromise on their doctrine of inspiration of scripture which is to say we cannot compromise our understanding on the authority and sufficiency of Scripture for the church. 
It is not unlike Paul said of God, let every man be found a liar, and yet God will be found true. If we apply that to scripture, we say let everybody in the culture and the world be found a liar, but God's word will stand. It is eternal. All flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. And it is by this word that we were brought forth. It is by this word that we stand and are sustained. And it is by this word that we are sanctified. And it is this word that saves. A powerful tool of social justice warriors is the presentation of a persuasive narrative, a meta-narrative designed to give identity, place, and purpose to an individual. To be a part of something, the Christians need to be just as powerful with their own narrative, with an even greater conviction to proclaim a better story and a better reality. Namely, that God is our creator, that man is made in his image, that sin has corrupted universally the heart of man, that Christ as the God-man has redeemed to God men who turn to him. The resurrection marked the beginning of a new age, that the coming of the Spirit guaranteed the reality of this age to come and all of its glories for those united to Christ, and that the return of Christ will establish his kingdom and set all things right on earth. And anything that opposes that, we need to confront. Listen to Paul's words. You're familiar with them. For we walk in the flesh, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. But the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations in every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That is the measure of the church. We take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and we stand in the truth. The church also needs to demonstrate the fruit of grace. We need to be marked not merely by what we're against, by what we're for. Not merely matching hostility with hostility and anger with anger, but with a humble presentation of the truth. Unlike those who are willing to destroy Others, in order for freedom, we are the ones who are willing to die for the freedom of others, the church should be, as Christ died for us. Their story, that of social justice warriors, is marked by grievance, anger, violence, destruction, oppression. Ours should be marked by grace, gratitude, patience, love, courage, building up and not tearing down, and by sacrifice for others, not their destruction. Speaking of this, one said this, ideological social justice can be recognized by its bitter fruit. The lives and cultures shaped by it are marked by enmity, hostility, suspicion, entitlement, and grievance. If your story tells you that your primary identity is victim, your life will be marked by bitterness, resentment, grievance, and entitlement. And that, again, is individual, not just a group. He goes on to say, if your story tells you that your primary identity is privileged oppressor, your life will be marked by guilt and shame. However, if your story tells you that your identity is sinner yet loved by God and saved by grace, your life will be marked by gratitude and humility. And so it should be in the church. This enables us to understand Christ's own instruction that we are to love our enemies. We are to love our enemies. It enables us to tenaciously confront error and the destruction of false ideologies, but with a genuine concern for people, not out of self-righteous superiority. And so how we bring the message of truth is important as well. So we have to not compromise on the truth, take every thought captive. We have to demonstrate the fruit of grace, deliver that truth as those who are saved by grace. But it also means this. 
It means we need to be clear as the church about human sinfulness and human responsibility for that sin. We have to have a clear doctrine of sin and not be afraid to say it. Their story is marked by victimhood, not by personal responsibility, a sense of being wronged and owed restitution without the requirement of repentance or acknowledgement of personal wrong, again, driven by self-righteousness. Christians need to be clear about the reality of sin's corruption on every person and the total person, about the personal responsibility of each one for his or her actions before God and to others, about the terrible situation of all men before the holy justice of God. We need to proclaim that everyone, no matter what their personal history, no, what, no matter what their present situation, still follow, falls as an individual under this condemnation that none is righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks for God. They all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's no one who does good. There's not even one. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And the reality of sin brings the reality of condemnation. But again, I'd want to note, it also brings the dignity of moral responsibility. The dignity of moral responsibility. We are morally responsible for our lives, but even more before our creator, who is perfectly holy. And our greatest threat is not the injustice of men, and our greatest need is not earthly peace. It is, as Jesus said, do not fear those who can destroy, kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That should be our greatest concern. And that means then that the church, with the message of the reality of human sinfulness, is to be clear about justification by faith in the death and resurrection of Christ. While human justice is necessary and we should pursue it as a fruit of the gospel, we need to be clear that we all stand guilty before the holy justice of God. Far greater than the wrongs of man is our guilt and rebellion and transgression before God. And the great reality of gospel is this, that though we are guilty, though we are rightly condemned by perfect and holy justice, he upheld his justice and righteousness in another, in the incarnate Son of God who he held up as a propitiation for our sins on the cross, for all of the world to see that he himself bore our condemnation in his body, though he had no sin, that we ourselves are counted righteous in Christ and in Christ alone, so that God could be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And it means then as a church, In humility, we take that message and with transformed lives, we engage in good deeds and love for the neighbor, our neighbor for the sake of the gospel. The church is to engage in a comprehensive proclamation of the gospel, both in the truth claims of scripture and genuine care for people and society. One noted biblical justice has always had social, political, and economic dimensions. God's people have a heritage, a responsibility to one another and to the world. And that meant carrying the witness of justice into every area of life. Let me end with two statements of Christ. That means then, as Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and they glorify your Father who is in heaven. We have to remember, and this is hard, and look, I'm a, I'm a sinner uh, just like you are. I have the remains of sin in me. It, it's, it's not easy. It's only by the grace of God, and as we have a robust understanding of the gospel, our natural tendency is to fight with anger, but we need to fight with the truth. We need to remember that it takes more courage to love your enemy than to hate your enemy. 
takes more courage to speak the truth and to suffer than it is to jump on the bandwagon of culture to escape any kind of persecution or consequences for standing with Christ. And may God give us the grace and may we have this confidence. So much more could be said but this, that we serve, as we read this morning, the King of Kings who in his resurrected glory said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And he made this promise, who has all authority. And this is where we as Christians stand. This is the confidence we have amid all of the chaos, amid all of the confusion, amid all of the, the stuff that we see in this world. We are a part of this promise. Are you ready? You know it. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Social justice will not prevail against it. No political power will prevail against it. No government will prevail against it. No false ideology will prevail against it. The church will stand. The church will suffer. But the church will endure and ultimately be glorified in Christ Jesus. And we need to hold to that and ask God to help us believe that as we go forward into the world. Well, that was... um, a little different, but I hope hopefully helpful in some general sense. I would let me pray, and then we'll close our service. Father, thank you for your word, and Lord, we say these things boldly, but not in our own boldness, not in our own strength, for we are weak. It is only in you, Christ, that we are made strong. It is only by you, Holy Spirit, that we have not an attitude of timidity or of fear, but of self-control of boldness, of clarity. So help us to stand, help us to be faithful. And and Lord, the, the, the more difficult so often is not merely to stand boldly on your truth, it is to love those who we have the impulse of the flesh sometimes to hate. It is to live in this world, O Christ, as you lived in this world. It is to pursue our own sanctification, which will be marked by a love for you, Christ and a love for our neighbor and a more tenacious love for our brethren within the church with whom we share this hope. So help us to be bold. Help us to understand the gospel in the way that we are humble. Help us to have courage. We stand in your grace alone. And Lord, for any who might even be here this morning who do not yet know you in this way, O Christ, who know you merely as the name of a religion, who know you merely as what is familiar and maybe how they grew up or or what they've always associated with, but don't know you in truth to daily battle sin, to daily love your word, to daily renew our minds, to not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we might prove what your will is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect to give our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, I pray that you would bring them into that knowledge today and help the rest of us to stand again for you that you might be glorified in us, your people. And it's in your name, our Lord Jesus, that we pray, amen.